And now, coming to you live from the grocery room, high above the Cooch Sheet Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strahan and a fresh glass of Merlot for Gary K. Wolf on the Cooch Sheet Podcast. Any of our regular listeners knows perfectly well that this is Pinot Noir. And I... <laughs> but at any rate, once again, we are coming to you from no conference anywhere, any time in the world. <laughs> and and, and the, a conference which I've heard about for years uh, is yours, SwanCon. Yes. Which, yes. interestingly enough, piece of, uh, of, of trivia for people who like to collect historical stuff, ICFA used to be known as SwanCon. Did it really? I did not know that. Its first couple of years, it was not a formal name, but ICFA was funded by the mother of Thomas Burnett Swan. Oh, wow. I didn't know that either. Wow. And that's how, that, that, how it got started. I mean, she was a, uh, a, a classic Southern gentle lady uh, who had, uh, I was actually at her house once. Um, the only time I met Stephen King was at the house of the mother of of, of Thomas Burnett Swan, Margaret Swan, and it's a story. That's some is, kind of clang, Carrie. It's oh, well, it's not only not only did I meet Stephen King at this antebellum mansion. I mean, it's like Tara. This is like going into Gone with the Wind. All these nice little old ladies. We actually had tea cakes and and that sort of tea thing. cakes. Uh, and a bunch of us. I was at that point involved enough with the organization that I got invited out to this dinner. I found myself sitting on a, on, on a couch between Stephen King and Leslie Fiedler, the, the great American mm-hmm. critic. Uh, and we were all talking about Hill Street Blues, which was <laughs> at the moment the favorite show of all of us. And, and so if, if I had any memory of this at all, if my memory weren't fading, uh, I would remember what kind of detailed, uh, working out of an episode that Leslie Fiedler and Stephen King wanted to write for Hill Street Blues if they ever got invited. (laughs) I got to tell you, I mean, in retrospect, I'm sure that the uh, producers of Hill Street Blues would have loved Stephen King to get involved with writing an episode. I think they probably would have at that point. But at any rate, the the end of the story is that uh, the first couple of years, it was the Thomas Burnett Swan Memorial Conference called SwanCon with two N's, unlike yours. And, um, it continued that way, um, which is why they could afford to bring in Isaac Bashevis Singer and Tom Stoppard and uh, a very uh, expensive international guests. It stopped. Um, it stopped the year Harlan Ellison was the guest of honor, and Mrs. Uh-huh. Mrs. Swan, who didn't attend the conference, wanted to attend this famous young writer's young by her standards uh, presentation. And and all Harlan did was what Harlan does. Um, it, it was reasonably profane, but very, very funny, but not funny to Mrs. Swan and her friends. <laughs> At which point, SwanCon ceased to be. <laughs> and- well, SwanCon here fortunately has not ceased to be. I would actually shout out to the organizers of the convention. I should be at the convention right now. Uh, I feel for them. Their convention was called off the evening before it was due to start uh, because of a lockdown due to COVID here. Uh, it was the 54th consecutive SwanCon, I think, the longest running convention in the country here. And I th- believe they're going to reschedule to later in 2021. So hopefully that can still go ahead. I know that they'd got to the stage where Kat Sparks, a friend of the podcast, was just about to fly over. And I think Claire Coleman, who was the guest of honor for the convention, had actually just landed oh, and really? they had to get her turned around and sent home again. So and that she wouldn't get locked in a hotel for three days. Right, exactly. That's So just got sent back at the airport, not even leaving the airport, I presume. Well, no, well, what happened, I believe, is she could have stayed, but she would have gone into hotel quarantine for three days. 
Uh-huh. Because lockdowns for three days and may extend because there's been some other stuff happening. But certainly for the three-day lockdown, she would have flown to Perth, spent three days in a hotel, then turned around and flown back. Oh. Which doesn't really seem much worth it, does it? No, and it's somebody, I mean, I was, I, one of these years I might be getting to SwanCon, but Claire Coleman is one of the writers. I'm, I've read one novel by her uh, or by them. I don't know what the, but, but you actually have an indigenous writer as a guest of honor, which is a good thing. But mm. I don't, and I was asking last, the last conference I went to, the last convention I went to was World Fantasy 2019 in Los Angeles, and Margot Lanigan was the guest. And I was asking Margot about Claire Coleman, whom she apparently has met. And she said there were one or two other indigenous Australian science fiction or fantasy writers, um, not widely known, not as widely known as Claire Coleman is. But nevertheless, that's, a, that's an important kind of gesture to have an author uh, who's an indigenous writer of our stuff as a guest of honor. Undeniably. It's very important to recognize indigenous voices everywhere. And to have an Indigenous person who is successful as a guest of honour at, for at least Australia, a major convention, is very important. So I genuinely hope that they are able to um, reschedule and arrange that. In fact, I understand, and I'll try to put it in the show notes, that there is a uh, there's a GoFundMe thing going on, a fundraiser to offset some of the incidental costs because it's quite expensive to be able to get her home again uh, because of COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, just as actually there's, there's another one that I'll drop into the show notes as well. Not a friend of the, the podcast because we've never talked to him, but a, a, someone who I've always thought warmly of in science fiction terms is John Varley. And you would know that he had a major heart procedure earlier this month. Uh, yes, I did and, see that. And there's a GoFundMe going on to raise um, funds to help offset the cost of all that for him because, of course, the American medical system is insane and because being a science fiction writer, particularly an aging science fiction writer, is not a profitable business quite often. Speaking as an American, speaking as an American, just to correct your previous statement, what do you mean, system? <laughs> there is no American medical system. There's, there's a medical wild west here in this country. But well, here's, here's a question. Far be it from me. And actually, I should be clear. A United Statesian. Okay. We, have, we have to clear yeah, this absolutely. up. This is something you and I have been talking about in edits a little bit for columns and things, and me with other people too. We need, we need in the, in, if, if we can no longer refer to anyone from somewhere in Africa as African because they're a distinct uh, cultures and nations and all that. You've got to stop referring to people from the USA as Americans. This is not. You're not the only Americans. This is this is not a new issue. This has been an issue on in, in scholarly publications and in, in dictionaries for years. And the argument is this: uh, Canadians don't. First of all, for better or or worse, Canadians don't want to be called Americans because they don't want to be confused with us. Uh, the name of Canada is Canada, so they're Canadians. Mexico is Mexico. The only country in North and South America that has America as part of the name of the country is the United States of America. Sure. And that's the argument for Americans that it can't be confused with Canadians. Um, if you use the term North Americans, it gets confusing. But then you then you have to try to figure out, uh, well, what's the difference between North America and Central America? And then you think, well, all of Mesoamerica, which is kind of the anthropological term. And, and then you get really confused um, because the only thing you can depend on then is South America. Yeah. At any rate, I agree. Uh, Americans have claimed the title 
um, just like we claimed the land, just like we claimed the name, uh, without, without any rights at all. But the thing is, everybody went along with us for centuries. Well, yes, I know. And I mean, I know that our friend, Justine Lavalestier, tried to go with Uesian, mm. which doesn't seem to have taken you know, gained much traction, but seems at least something of a compromise. Actually, it's shown up in a couple of... Uh, Science fiction novels. I don't think it was in Ridley Walker, but there have been variations on that. Um, yeah. the, the the best the best description, the best symbol word is a now forgotten um, science fiction story by I think Robert Nathan called "Digging the Weans." In which case, people in what we call America, Amer- what we now call American culture, were called Weans simply because they always referred to themselves as we, uh, as though nobody else in the world existed. I don't think Weans is going to catch on, Gary. I but can't see a single American Patrick going, we're just a bunch of Weans, just little but chaps, little chaps Weans. That's true, that's true. Uh, <laughs> well, here, here, here's a question, though, uh, about the having lost Swan Khan. And as I said to you before we started recording, if anyone in the world had been asked what is the most likely in-person convention to actually take yeah, yeah, place, yeah. it would have been yours in Australia, in, in Western Australia, which has not had problems for months and months. But the question it raises, now that we've all lived for more than a year without conventions, I gather a few friends of mine actually went to uh, Boston last spring before the lockdown. The last time I was at a convention was 2019. Me too. Has the loss of conventions really affected the field at all? Has it damaged the field? Has it slowed people's output? Has it changed publishing? Has it had any real effect other than interrupting people's social lives? Well, okay. I think what we need to do is allow that some of what we're... Well, okay. Let, let me stop waffling. Has it affected publishing? Uh, the loss of conventions, I don't think, have affected uh, mainstream publishing at all. I think COVID has. COVID's had an enormous effect on mainstream publishing, but no effect on... Uh, I think it's had some effect on small press publishing. I think there are small presses that structure their year around being able to go to a convention and sell, hand sell uh, a batch of Uh their books and to launch them and get to PR. And so that's been taken away from, so that's had a a impact. Uh, I think beyond that, I think it's hard to say because once upon a time we would also, we go to conventions, we meet people, we do business Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. But I honestly think that's been on the wane for the last fifteen years. You know, um, it's been a long time since there was a major book publisher party at one of the major conventions. Mm-hmm. It's been a long time since they've seemed to really felt like they've needed to have much of a presence. Even Tor, who are the you know banner uh, company for having a major party at a convention, has not had a party at some of the recent World Cons, I believe. No, I so right. Uh, which raises, so, I mean, and, and, and there are obviously different populations of conventions when you talk about doing business. And this used to be part of the reputation of world fantasy was that editors, such as yourself, publishers, could talk to prospective writers, could toss around ideas. Uh, and I, uh, one of my favorite things to do when I read uh, books for reviews is to read the acknowledgments and find out a lot of stories got hammered out over drinks at a, at a bar, at a convention, and this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, for most of us who are simply readers, we don't do that. We don't make deals at conventions. But you mentioned the small presses, and you're absolutely right. Small presses, book dealers, used book dealers, the whole commerce of, of kind of um, what's new and, and who should I be listening to, I think that's been affected. I, I guess the other way of asking the same question is over the years, over the decades that you and I may have been going to conventions, 
What good have they done? The <laughs> I think they've done all sorts of good. And actually, you've touched on some of the things that were, were missing for a second there. And one of them, I think, is the accidental collaboration the mm-hmm. cross-pollination just when creative people come together. The you know, conventions have been over time air, you know, spaces where creative people come together and just spend time, and that has all sorts of different impacts on what they do. So we won't see the long-term impact of that stopping for some time, and maybe there will be other mechanisms that will come into play, but I can you know, I can think of a number of things where that impact. What, what good has it done? I think there are for some of those rare book dealers, for some of the small – uh, mm-hmm. small, uh, book s- sellers and stuff. It has been critical to their years over the years. There's ones who show up at every world con, every world fantasy. And they're, you know, at one point, as someone said, I mean, you could go around North America going from one convention to the other every weekend and make a living, you know, just going to conventions and being in dealers' rooms and all that kind of thing. So I think those sort of, those people in that circumstance have suffered very greatly because of this. And that's um, just, never mind the, just, the yeah, real impact. Book dealers, but merchandise dealers, costumers, yeah. jewelry makers, people who sell movie All those people. I mean, think back. I mean, for people who haven't been to a world con or a world fantasy, but particularly a world con, you know, the dealers' rooms are enormous. They're full of all kinds of memorabilia, T-shirts, art, jewelry, posters, books, all kinds of things. And quite often they're quite bespoke dealers. Mm-hmm. So – a world con becomes a really valuable part of the year. It's like when San Diego Comic Con became somewhere that comic dealers couldn't go to. Yeah. And I, I think it was Mile High Comics in Denver or something were saying, you know, it used to be a huge portion of their annual income and they lost that because they couldn't go. And so for this last, well, two years to, to miss out on conventions, um, it's a huge blow, I think. Huge. But but there's another side to it too because what it gives or what it takes away it also gives i think it's been a bit of a force for leveling the field a little bit this covid thing leveling. you know uh last year when well, okay last year during uh Conzealand, which ran virtually there was a uh, a uh, Conzealand fringe which was run on officially right. suddenly people who were in a different time zone could attend a lot of people from parts of the world who could not afford or practically go to a world con or a world fantasy could attend it virtually and no it's not remotely the same kind of thing but it's a thing and they could have a a, a presence in it and you know, you get people like the uh, you know, the editors of the Dominion anthology, right? Mm-hmm. Who suddenly have far more profile than they would have had, you know, without COVID. Most likely, I mean, Dominion came out, and it was the right time for a number of reasons, as well as the quality of the book. And suddenly, you know, it's up for an award every month. It's up for the net, you know, you know, one of the novellas is up for the Nebula, and so on and so forth. So, you know, that's a big thing that. Um, People can actually interact virtually. I've, I've not been taken with virtual conventions very much. I mean, I will say, I think it was at the Nebulas that they had the the gather piece of software, which wasn't too bad, though I know that people had serious accessibility issues with it elsewhere. Uh, so hopefully that's something can, can be uh, worked out. And it's still nothing like being there, right? I no, mean, it is. It's it kind of nice. It's a little bit of a thing, but it's not actually. But it does it does level the field that way. It does, and one of the things that I see people being concerned about in the future is is also a kind of double edged sword. On the one hand, this this has happened with ICFA, who are um, still involved as an outsider, as a as, as an alum, I guess, with these discussions. And I know it's happening with other conventions that from now on, partly because of what you've described 
with such things as the Dominion Anthology or such things as the Conzealand Fringe is that from now on, people are going to expect at least an online component of an in-person convention. And that's a great thing. In terms of an academic convention like ICFA, a lot of graduate students or undergraduate students who can't get funding to go, uh, a lot of people who can't come internationally can now attend virtually. The other side of that is from the point of view of convention organizers who have to be able to guarantee a certain number of room nights in order to get a decent room rate, in order to get banquet facilities, in order to get meeting rooms and that sort of thing. So it's going to be a kind of delicate balance between keeping the online portion of the convention available for people who need it, but attracting enough people in person to be able to actually stage a convention at a reasonable rate. And I know a lot of people who complain about the cost of conventions don't know what kinds of negotiations uh, the local committees have to get into with hotels. Um, and yeah. anybody who's, uh, who's tried to book a hotel at a rack rate during a convention gets a sense as to how much of a discount they're getting at most conventions. And yeah. That, oh, yeah, very that, much. That, that, that's dependent entirely on getting a lot of in-person attendees. So you don't want to lose, yes. you don't want to lose the online attendees, but you don't want to lose your in-person attendees to the online experience. Yeah, and there are other things. I mean, I have to say it's been eye-opening for me in some ways. I think that's true. Eye-opening for me because I'm someone who is privileged enough that I can attend conventions when they run normally and transport allows, right? So last year I would have gone to Conzealand. I probably would have gone to World Fantasy in Salt Lake City. This year I definitely would have gone to Montreal and to DC. Uh, But because I'm in Western Australia, I'm on the other side of the wrong time zone. So even the virtual stuff runs at the wrong time for me. You know, well, the yeah. great thing about Conzeal- well, about the Conzealand Fringe, even though it was unofficial, or maybe because it was unofficial, is it was the part that abandoned the local time zone and ran in the opposite time zone for people who couldn't attend. Mm-hmm. So that was great. But, you know, it, it is one of those things. And, and it's been interesting because it has forced me to be more aware of just how difficult it is for a lot of other people to attend a convention that I normally would have, you know, so. Well, it's the same thing. And you're right. You're privileged. And I guess uh, I am too. I mean, not not that I'm getting any support from the university anymore, but I, I know the number of people who couldn't go to New Zealand because they had to simply budget either Dublin or New Zealand, but not both. Uh, yeah. An issue that comes up with world cons every time they go internationally, it's exciting to go internationally, but there's a certain number of fans who simply need to be able to budget their international travel every two or three years because they don't have the resources to do it annually. Of course. Look, it's, I mean, I, I mean, even I know it's insane that I, pl- I go every year, right? To come from Australia. I mean, and it's, it's been weird for me. I've been complaining about it on the podcast. I mean, ever since 2002, last year was the first year I'd missed attending at least one international convention. Yeah, you know? I'm sure that's true of a lot of people. Uh, just, and, I'm, and I'm itchy. Like, I realize it won't happen this year. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll get to – there's a second Australian convention due to run in October, uh, Conflux, and I may go to that. But realistically, I mean, like, I'm going to come be – well, I'll be kind, Gary. I'm not going to keep on your couch. But I'm coming to Chicago next year. That's my plan, assuming that everything doesn't go madly awry. I'm pretty sure that that's going to work, and I think that <coughs> – excuse me. The one of the things that is is, is affecting everybody is the uh, sense that you sense that you're at some point going to have to commit to going to a convention, even though, as Swan kind has demonstrated this year, at any moment some lockdown could happen anywhere in the world. Absolutely, that, that could be absolutely the case from now on. Not, not necessarily that, but you know, I mean, one of the things that um, 
uh, occurs to me about, uh, well, we have a convention in Orlando in March. If we had a convention in October, we'd be in the middle of hurricane season. I'm trying to plan a trip to California now to visit friends, uh, not for a convention necessarily, because every once in a while I want to go to somewhere where there isn't a convention. Yeah. <laughs> and, and basically, it'd be nice to go there in the fall when COVID is over. And then as, as our good friend, a good friend of the podcast, Amelia Beamer, who lives, lives there, reminded me, you're out of COVID season and you're into fire season. So when do you want to <laughs> You know what I was thinking, Gary? It's relevant to the podcast because we should talk about science fiction a little bit amongst that. We've talked about the impact of COVID on conventions and everything. But as we sit here, it's the 25th of April, 2021 here mm-hmm. in Perth and the 24th of April, 2021 there. And we were in the middle of our 10 Minutes With series then. Yes. We'd just spoken to Gillian Redfern and Joe Hill and to Joe Haldeman and to Paul McCauley and to Karen Fowler. They're all just around then. Mm-hmm. And it's been occurring to me that, you know, sort of, it, it is something we need to get back to this 10 minutes with thing. And so, you know, this isn't an announcement. This is me saying to you, I think maybe starting in the second half of the year, we should get, get a bit regular with that stuff I, I just to see what's happening. About, Check had, in on a different basis. Well, on a different basis, because the, the, I think one of the things that made it appealing to me, and I gather to, to a number of listeners, we had three very simple questions, which we don't want to repeat. But I do want to know at this point, after more than a year, how things are going. And what made me think of that is that when we were talking to Karen Fowler in the uh, uh, 10 Minutes With, one of the things that she had in the works was her novel about yes. the Booth family, which is now, I yes. think Putnam has announced it. Uh, she had a the short water, story, yes. uh, and it's and, and if it's and, and it's, it's related to the short story, but it's going to be terrific. It's going to be a kind of terrific alternate history thing. It'll be a Karen Joy Fowler novel, which means you can't even put a label on it. And it's interesting. I think it would be interesting for us to start talking to people. And we can certainly take advice from our listeners if they have further suggestions to ask, hmm. how have things gone last year? Did it slow? You, you, you said you were doing okay. Did you do okay? <laughs> well, let me ask you, Gary. You said you were doing okay. Did you do okay? Well, you know, here's a funny thing. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I, somebody uh, said something on uh, Facebook about doesn't everybody have to admit that last year has been the worst year you've ever had? And no, it wasn't. I mean, uh, Joe Haldeman came back and said 1968 was a pretty bad year for Joe. He got blown up in Vietnam. You know, your, your parents die, your spouse dies. So, so it wasn't that bad. One of the odd effects of that was I had not written uh, an essay for an academic journal in probably five years. And Suddenly, I have two of them, all of which, both of which are due at the end of the month now. So I find myself doing things I didn't expect I was going to do. I miss talking to friends, but I do. And I've, I've gotten to the point where I don't do a lot of Zoom meetings with people just for the sake of looking at their postage stamp site. Yeah, that's all over. Yeah. That's kind of so. Zoom has is, Zoom is not ma- managed to turn itself into a part of our lives. It's, it's, it's one of the things we'll all want to avoid, like the plague. That's okay. Bad choice of words. Uh, we'll want to avoid. Well, no, actually, I, I disagree. I think though. I think what it's done is, I mean, apart from, I mean, virtual meetings for business are now hard, hardwired in. Oh, that's true. But I think that as one of the ways of catching up socially, it's there. It's just that whole Zoom cocktail party kind of thing where you're going, I never see you. Let's do that. And yeah, so, right? Nah, nah, no. nah. No, nah, I think nah. no. I, I agree that the uh, one of the things that the last year has shown us that. Uh, an executive flying from LA to New York for a two-hour meeting around a table with other executives 
is a little bit insane in terms of the use of resources. And yes. uh, when I think back to when I was uh, having to get up at, uh, when I was an administrator, I had to be at work at eight or nine, or there would be a committee meeting at eight and it would be zero degrees outside. And I'd have to walk, it was just horrible, you know, going out in sub-zero temperatures to go to a committee meeting and realizing now nobody needed to be at that committee meeting. Everybody could have gotten <laughs> up and done it in their jammies and everybody would have preferred to do that. Yeah, yeah. I think that's probably true. And in fact, now that I think about it, something would apply to things like the Locus Foundation board meetings. Mm -hmm. Could do those. Anyway, uh, let me ask you this then. I mean, we will talk about 10 minutes worth coming back in some ways. And I know we've talked about it before and it hasn't happened. So, I mean, in fact, actually, let me just step back half a second and say, I found 2021 much harder than 2020. Really? 2020 was a breeze of a year for me, a breeze of a year compared to 2021. And I find it very hard to get a lot of traction on anything, actually, which is why I've got a pile of editing work sitting in my email inbox and why for the podcast, I think, there's been like, let's start doing this and then it doesn't happen. And it's just getting traction and focus. It's just like 2021, much harder than 2020 for me. So we'll see. Maybe we'll see some action on on, on that on the the uh, the podcast front. But my question for you is, how is your science fiction and fantasy horror, whatever horror reading year going so far? How are you finding it to be? I mean, here we are, we're checking in. It's the end of April. We're mm. th third of the way through the year. Presumably we've seen a chunk of the major books of the year. We're seeing where we're now deeply into awards announcement season. So we've got that sort of sense ticking around the background. How are you feeling? What are you reading? What's been good? I don't, th I, I don't think it's been a bad uh, year at all. I, one of the things I was thinking the other day when I was uh, turning in my locus column is that I don't see any negative effect. It seems to me that there are lots of uh, interesting things coming out. A lot of the stuff that's appearing now is stuff that was in process during the first year of lockdown. So if anything, we're beginning to see some effect of that. Um, I don't see it as... Uh, unfortunate at all. I mean, it seems to me that, for example, uh, uh, the, 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 the probably the big fun book or the enjoyable book, if you treat YA fiction as just reading for fun, is Charlie Jane Anders' um, um, novel. Of, Victory's Greater Than Death. Victory's Greater Than Death. It's just fun. It's just, mm -hmm. it's, it's uh, all, of, all of the favorite stuff that she's read and seen and, 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 and listened to. Um, it's, yep. it's the sort of thing that Charlie Jane Anders was going to write sooner or later anyway. I don't know this from any personal experience, but I, my, I use that as an example of a novel that would have happened the way it happened with or without the lockdown. That's my guess. She can correct me if I'm wrong on that. And the sense I've had about the other things I've read or am reading has is, is, is been pretty much the same. I don't think, um, I, I, I may not have started reading things that, uh, well, actually, that's that's not quite true, um, because I was reading. What was I reading recently? Where? Uh, wait a minute. Wait, no, 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 no. I know what I was reading. It was fascinating because I, I told you I'm fascinated with reading acknowledgments and afterwards and that sort of thing. The most interesting thing I've read in terms of the last two years and how that might have affected things was Catherine Valenti's *The Past Is Red*, which is another thing that actually you're responsible for both parts of that getting published. That's very true. That's very true. Uh, and congratulations. It's, it's, it's one of the more entertaining and, ma and manic, I want to say manic, it partly is that. But the thing that's interesting is The Future is Blue, this wonderful short story, which she wrote for your Drowned Worlds anthology. Which she did. Which 
footnote is simply becoming more relevant minute by minute, even as we speak, even though it's two years old now. It's what, three years old, four years old? Longer than, yeah, yeah, yeah. But at any rate, uh, so Kat wrote that she had written the story for you uh, before the 2016 election, and it had one sort of attitude about global warming and uh, the, uh, the society that we live in now, which the society that she's talking about, it's about a girl living on the great Pacific garbage patch, which has now become so solid you can build on it. And our culture is referred to as the fuckwit, which is a kind of nice phrase. By the time she got around to writing uh, The Past is Red, the book is actually the short story, uh, or the novelette, I guess, uh, The Future is Blue, followed by a longer novella called The Past is Red. By the time she That's was, right. By the time she was uh, writing The Past is Red, uh, it was in the Toward, toward the middle of the Trump administration. So she was much more despairing. But by the time the book comes out, of course, Trump is gone. And so <laughs> the, the, the kind of the whole political and, uh, and, and, and historical uh, arc of the last two years is kind of embedded in that book, which I actually think gets better. I think, I think the novella that she wrote as a follow-up is stronger and more moving uh, and, and deeper possibly because it was written out of less optimism. But at any rate, that's what I'm seeing, as I'm seeing people talking about how I started this before the lockdown. Uh, we'll be talking to Sarah Pinsker, for example, who I think started, uh, was working on uh, We Are Satellites during the lockdown. But apart from the fact that they tell us that, I don't think there's any particular indication in the fiction itself that we've had a horrible lockdown. There's a lot of evidence that the United States had a horrible president, but that's to be expected. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I have to, like, you've got me thinking now because, I mean, first of all, the past is red and the future is blue are some of the favorite things that I've ever worked on mm -hmm. or been involved in helping publish. I, pr I absolutely adore the character Tetley Abednego. I think she's extraordinary and I absolutely love her completely. The mm -hmm. the book I feel like I've been working on on and off for ages. It goes back. I mean, it's had title changes, all kinds of things. But what I wanted to check was, yeah, see, the, the only slight thing about, like, you're right about the impact of Trump on that, but not about COVID. That's right. Because, because the whole thing was, was finished. I mean, I got the first final copy of The Past is Read back in 2019. So it, it predates it all so by, it by a healthy yeah. distance. Well, I guess, I guess it just took a chunk of time. This is what I'm saying about the time lag, is that in those, in those stories, you can see a kind of arc of the uh, Trump presidents. And I think what we're seeing showing up now is a bit of that. I think we're seeing a little yeah. bit of uh, people acknowledging that Western, I don't want to pick on Trump particularly. Oh, yeah, I do. But we can pick on other people as well. Uh, there's an awareness in the fiction that's coming out now that Western democracy is not necessarily permanent, that it's not as stable yeah. as we thought it was, that things can happen um, in, in, in any country. I mean, uh, the, the kind of fiction that our friend James Bradley writes is, doesn't show a lot of confidence in the Australian government long term either. Well, fair enough too. Fair yes. enough. But I think what I love the most about the past is read and about Tetley Abednego is she loves her world. Well, okay, this is a fascinating question because – why does she love her world? Um, and I've, you've probably, okay, you've probably already read my review, so you know what I'm going to say. She's not a naive, stupid character. No. There is a set of characters, 
and I, I was actually going, I wrote, I wrote a whole, par- you should be glad that I don't send you some paragraphs that I write in these reviews. I had this whole paragraph going on about what's the term for somebody who thinks they're in a utopia, but they aren't. Uh, mm-hmm. There was actually a suggestion made years ago by, I want to say Damon Knight, but it may not have been, to use the term anti-utopia uh, to describe a utopia which in the minds of the characters is a utopia, but in the minds of the readers is horrible. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the example that comes to mind is a novel by Robert Silverberg called The World Inside, part of which was published separately, I think, as an award-winning story called A Happy Day in 2381. And these people living in these massive arcologies, a, like a billion people per structure or something, a million people per structure, and they think they've got the best of all possible worlds. They think that this is great. All they do is reproduce and they have sex and they and then you realize these are brainless characters. These are the kinds of characters, and there is a subset of dystopian fiction like this. These are the kinds of characters that Winston Smith became at the end of 1984. You know, what yep. happens? Yep. I, he loved Big Brother. What happens afterwards, after he's learned he's loved Big Brother? So there are those characters who are essentially brainwashed characters. Tetley in, um, in The Past is Red is not one of those. Tetley, in fact, is one of the smartest characters in her society. Uh, and it, without spoiling the short story, she makes a decision which probably saves her society from imminent yes. destruction and becomes a pariah because of it. Uh, she sees through things. She understands things. She learns things in the novella uh, that other people don't learn. So she's clearly not a naive person who really believes that she's in the best of all possible. But I think she tells herself that story because it's a survival mechanism. We need to get Kat think, on and talk about this, obviously. Well, it's true. We should. Because, in fact, she's got two books coming out with me this year. Uh-huh. But um, I think – I don't think Tetleth is a utopian living in a dystopia. I think Tetley is someone living in the real world that she's looked at that and has decided to love it anyway. That's a decision. That's that's my point. Yeah. Her decision. It's it's she has a She loves her world. She loves Garbage Town. She loves her mm-hmm. fat seal big bargains. She loves her crazy pot plants and her boat. And she realizes there are social prices to pay for it. And then there's stuff that happens in past is read, which people who read it will get to. But it's great. I mean, I love it. I love the other novella that I that came out of nowhere, Comfort Me with Apples, which is coming out later in the year as well, because there are two novellas from Tor.com. What an ad this has turned into. Uh, there are two novellas coming out from Tor.com from Cat. Uh, the Past is Red, which is due out, I think, in June or July, and then uh, Comfort Me with Apples, which is due out in November, which is a Gone Girl meets Spinning Silver kind of thing. Okay. It is great. I love it too. Another uh, one in fact, of those things I think Cat was- right now is just incredible. And it's just, just as a, a, a footnote to that is, that, of course, the title, I guess, comes from, what, the Song of Solomon or something, but but there was a classic novel back in the 50s by Peter DeVries, who nobody reads anymore, called Comfort Me With Apples, which means nothing because, as, as, as I say, the phrase is from somewhere in the Bible. But I'm interested in people like Tetley or people who are living in a dystopian situation and are clearly critical of it, are clearly uh, realistic in terms of their outlook. And you're right, she chooses to adopt this attitude. Um, and and I, don't, I, I agree also. I, don't, I would not describe uh, Garbage Town as a dystopia because usually traditional dystopias are the result of government action or the result of some kind of authoritative action or corporate action. There's no, there's no sign of government at all in that world that I can tell. Yeah. It's certainly like 
if you like, it's an objective dystopia. I mean, after all, climate change has run amok. Half of the world has been washed away. Uh, they're floating on a garbage patch with mm -hmm. few resources, et cetera, et cetera. It's terrible, right? And yet she's living a happy life or as happy a life as she can. And there are other factors that come into play later on. You know? And I think what's attractive, what's beguiling about the future is blue and the past is red and with Tetley Abednego is the idea that the future that we fear the most is in fact one we could enjoy living in. Uh, maybe the getting there will be terrible, and that's the the legend, you know, the lesson of Ministry of the Future, mm. the Stan Robinson book, which should have been on the Hugo and Nebula ballot. Um, it tells us that the journey will be terrible, but the destination may not be. Well, and what pa the pastor's rest tells us is we can love the, the, the destination. Well, the other thing I think that. Uh, we find in that, and 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 in a few other novels in which you have characters who have adapted to the world that they're born born into. In other words, these are not characters who've experienced the entire catastrophe, um, the way it's described in the Ministry of the Future. But characters who are born into this world. Ridley Walker is another example of a character born into his world who comes to accept it in a kind of odd way. There are characters in um, I don't know. There are characters in. The nanotech novels uh, that uh, Kathy, Kathleen, no, Kathleen Goonan came up with, characters oh, yeah, born yeah. into this futuristic world, which has a lot of things wrong with it, but they don't know what's wrong with it because they have nothing to compare it with except myths of a better world. Um, I think one of the things that's interesting about imaginary future societies, even if they're awful societies, is that you are correct. They are not dystopias. They are horrible mm. places to live, but they're not places that we're particularly being warned against uh, the the other term, uh, the other meaning, because I, I, I years ago wrote a dictionary of critical terms, which I can plug because nobody can find a copy of it anywhere now. The other meaning, the other meaning of the term anti-utopia, which did refer to uh, writers like Le Guin and Delaney, were fictions that questioned the whole notion of dividing the world into, into dystopias and utopias. In other words, the whole framework by which one thing is an ideal society and the other thing is a nightmare society, is a wrong way of thinking about society. That societies are never all good or all bad. And that's why True. the dispossessed was an ambiguous uh, dystopia. And uh, Triton, I think, was the Delaney novel that was an ambiguous heterotopia. Um, and for, for a while, that discussion went along. And, and so we're talking about a pattern of de defining future societies that are not simply awful warning stories, but that are, uh, what's the word? Horrible, horrible environments, but not horrible societies. Yeah. So what are you reading right now? Um, I started reading, uh, at, at, at your suggestion, I started reading something which I confess to having uh, given up on a while ago by an English uh, writer named Courtney Newland called mm -hmm. A River Called Time. Uh, okay. has gotten a lot. This is somebody who's written two of the episodes of uh, Steve McQueen's famous series of London short films. And it's um, the, the what, what's what slowed me down on it is this pretty good, pretty good mainstream novel about a kid and his best friend who becomes uh, a, a criminal and so forth and so on. Gradually, very gradually, he's unfolding a backstory and it takes place in a London in an alternate London, in which the Atlantic slave trade never existed. Mm -hmm. And all of Western civilization evolved in collaboration with the African empires rather than by conquering them, which is an interesting idea. And it may be great. Yep. It may, it, it, it's actually, it's, it's, an in, 
it's an ingratiating novel in all kinds of ways. It's just that that part of the ingratiation hasn't happened to me yet. And I'm curious as to how he can deal with this, because it's a kind of alternate history that removes a classic conflict rather than accelerating one. It's kind of inverted way of dealing with an alternate history. Uh, alternate yeah. history in our mind tends to be the man in the high castle. Uh, the, uh, I don't know, any number of Harry Turtledove novels, uh, Wardmore's Bring the Jubilee. What if the Nazis had won? What if the Confederacy had won? Uh, what if something yeah. even worse happened than what happened? This is one of the few I've seen. This is why it's intriguing to me. And without having finished it or even made my way a third of the way through it yet, how many fictions can you think of that try to imagine an alternate history better than the one we have in there? Well, that's a tricky one because some of them are attempts at it. Surely, I mean the you know the, the let's go back and prevent most of World War II is an attempt to imagine a better world. Surely, there are occasional pieces like uh, the. Most famous one I can think of is probably Kim Stanley Robinson's The Lucky Strike. What if we, yeah. what if we didn't bomb Hiroshima? And what if he got yeah. court-martialed? And what if this started a kind of pacifist movement? It's a very idealistic kind of story. But it's a short story. It's, 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 it's not an epic. Not, not I can't think of many. I, I mean, A River Called Time by, uh, let's get the name right. It's Korsha Newland. C-O-U-R-T-T-I-A. And I don't know how you pronounce you out. I think it's due out shortly. I, on the other hand, to, to bop, bop around here, because of our commitments to podcasting for our listeners and to catch up on our, our heavy 26-episode-per-year schedule that we're not making, <laughs> uh, I am reading We Are Satellites by Sarah Pinsker, her uh, sophomore effort, which you've already re read and reviewed and are well ahead of me on. And we'll be talking uh, and I'm enjoying that in a couple of weeks. Soon. Couple of which, 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 which means there are a couple of things I want to say that I probably should save for then, but I will say them anyway. Um, it's it's one of these things, another kind, another category of fiction. We don't need to focus specifically on We Are Satellites, but We Are Satellites is a novel about brain implants. That's all we need to say. And yeah, 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 yeah. Science fiction novels that deal essentially with a single technology are kind of interesting and less common, it seems to me, than they used to be. Well, maybe. I mean, certainly... There's all kinds of science fiction that I'm seeing less of right now, I feel, which might not be true, but I feel I'm seeing more speculative fiction, soft science fiction, and fantasy kind of things. Um, in terms of a single technology, I guess it depends whether you mean foregrounds it and deals with it as its primary story mechanism or has it as a back piece of background change. I think there's a lot of science fiction that backgrounds a single change and then runs a story in, in front of it, yeah. but a far fewer that actually foreground it as the thing. It's it also feels like it's it feels like it's more of a short story mechanism. I think it is because one of the persons that comes to mind when we when I mention this is Ted Chang, who's uh, the the truth of fact, the truth of feeling is a single technology story um, about, about recording memories, uh, as is for that matter John Crowley's Snow, which I think is one of the classic science fiction mm. novellas of all time. Again. The notion of recording your life—that seems to be a single technology issue that uh, um, that can generate powerful stories. Um, and in, in a weird way, even um, the uh, the story of your life, the Ted Chang story, which became the movie *Arrival*. In a way, it's a single technology story. The technology is given to us by aliens. But if you look past the alien contact part of it, the human part of the story has to deal with this technology which enables you essentially to see all time 
So I, th- I think it's yeah. – I th- my, my guess is that the single technology is more likely to be um, a literary device, more likely to be effective as a literary device than as a kind of argument about futuristic societies. That sounds plausible to me. That does. The other book I read a little while ago, which also you've read, so we're, we're, we're ready, we're foregrounding who we're going to be talking to, Gary, uh, is A Master of Gin by P. Jelly Clark, mm-hmm. which I've read and enjoyed. I'm looking forward to talking to Mr. Clark about. That should be an interesting conversation, I think. Well, it's interesting because it's another one of these things where, first of all, and we can say this about uh, Cat Valenti as well, he seemed to be having a lot of fun writing, um, and there's yeah. a lot of invention that goes into it, and and these things are just enjoyable on all kinds of levels. But it's also an interesting way of uh, sort of rethinking steampunk. I mean, it's essentially taking uh, something which, based on what I'm seeing on television these days, has been done to death. Victorian London doesn't need any more electrical vehicles. Oh, God. The, the nevers. Every damn the television regular, show. And, hmm? It's every damn tele- new television show. I know. The Irregulars, The Nevers, there's another couple coming. It's all like Victorian, this Victorian, that. I'm like, no. I'm right. And, 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 and part, of, part of you wants, part of me which wants to send really big checks to Jim, Jim Blaylock and say, look, here, you thought of it first. Uh, but par- part of what made me enjoy uh, Master of Gen was, okay, we're going to do steampunk, but we're going to do it in 1912 Cairo, which at least is a different city to talk about. That is true. We, we've seen less steampunk all over the world than we have steampunk London. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's like, ugh, I'm over it. I'm over it. I'm over it. And everybody else loves it, and it's great, and that's fine. But no. Well, every once in a while I think about cities in fiction, and we could, we could do a whole thing on this. Um, one, of our, um, uh, one of our friends who has – I don't think we've ever had Alex Irving on the podcast. Yes. Okay. But I think it might just have been a 10 minutes with. Well, okay. And Alex has got so a that- terrific thing uh, – out now, but he also wrote one of the best science fiction novels about Detroit called The Narrows, uh, which yes. kind of went, came and went. But one of the things that struck me about that is that it, it dealt realistically with the history of, of the American automobile, in, automobile industry, which is as valid an industry as, as, as London electrification. And yet it was Detroit. It was about parts of, it was about a city that doesn't get, you know, it doesn't get a thousand underground Detroit novels like there are of London. Um, I'd, I'd like, at, at this point, I'd be perfectly happy to see uh, steampunk Sao Paulo in 1923. Um, <laughs> just, just, well, I, mean, you I don't know if you're familiar with Akashic Press, who I think are out of like LA or somewhere. Well, they published the Corsia uh, Newland book. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they also publish a series called like Noir, they're Noir neighborhoods around the world. Okay. Noir Los Angeles, Noir this. Right. And okay, they've just started off a speculative series with an, with an anthology called Speculative Los Angeles, right? And it's just due out. And I think it's the first of an ongoing thing around neighborhoods. And I can imagine a steampunk version of that. I have no problem at all. And I, I, I think in, as much as I find London as utterly fascinating and utterly uh, mysterious as everybody else does, and it has Roman history and that sort of thing. Um, I think back to uh, I, I think back to uh, because of one of the articles I was writing was about the history of the Crawford Award, which I administer. The first Crawford Award went to Charles Dillent, and Charles Dillent, even though he didn't call it Toronto, his version of oh, no, or Ottawa was it Toronto or Ottawa? Nevertheless, Ottawa, Ottawa, his Ottawa series is a kind of magical 
reinvention of a part of the world that doesn't get magically reinvent, re- reinvented all the time. I think Chicago is underrepresented, as a matter of fact. I suspect, I don't know if there are any fantasy or horror novels, we have to include horror in this, obviously, uh, that deal with Perth, but probably... No, there are very few. I think it's a couple of crime novels, but that's about it. Yeah, and when Perth I, just doesn't attract attention. In fact, most of Australia doesn't attract much. Well, that's probably uh, that's uh, genre attention. Well, the center of Australia does. Even then, not so much. I mean, Australia Australians avoid it. Mm. Uh, I can only think of one or two examples of any major reimagining of the of the future of Australia. Oh, future! I of think Australia, in, yeah, I was kind of thinking of like secret, but, at but, the but mountain, in terms of at the mountain, in terms of that. that Go ahead. That, that urban kind of thing, that cities of, of, yeah. of somewhere. No, nobody really does that here. No, and, I should and also what, apologize. My neighbors have woken up and they've turned on their bandsaw in the background. So I'm trying to mute it out. But every now and again, you may hear a bandsaw going. That's fine because I'm surprised that my, for reasons I don't understand, my upstairs neighbors about this time every evening decide to rearrange their furniture. And I hear things dragged. Either they're rearranging their furniture or they're murdering people and dragging the bodies around. But to underline the thought I was uh, having about, the thought we were having about cities, is that when one of my favorite series of recent years was Aliette de Baudard's uh, King of the, 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 the Paris series, and she, she makes brilliant use of Paris. She uses Paris. There were parts of Paris I could recognize. I've been there. I felt the same way I felt when I read some of the good London novels. That would count, I don't know, Neil Gaiman's Neverwhere is one of them. But I thought, Paris. Paris is one of the most literary cities in the world, and it's probably, and I didn't realize this until Eliot's series came out, um, it's probably been underutilized in recent science fiction and fantasy. I think science fiction and fantasy tends to avoid everywhere that's not, it's, it's typical, you know, it's like a North American city or London or one or two other spots. It tends to be geographically quite narrow. That's changing a lot, particularly as more and more viewpoints from around the world come into play. And I think there's always been this feeling like, oh, no one would want to read a story set in X. And what they're finding is that people are actually totally up for what reading a story set in X if you just give them the chance. I think that's and true. so that that is changing. I was also going to say, since you mentioned um, Charles Delint, mm-hmm. you were not because of the way we did the ten minutes with thing part of my ten minutes with chat with Charles last uh-huh. year. But last year he announced that he was writing his first ever actual urban fantasy by modern urban fantasy definitions. Interesting. Yeah. A book to be called Juniper Wiles. Huh. Uh, the first in a series, if it does well. And that book comes out, at, in fact, in about a week and is purchasable from favorite online you know, dealers and whatever else. And I think there also may be some kind of physical edition somewhere as well. So something to look out for. But it's interesting that, he, that you know, having been part of the Terry Windling urban fantasy kind right. of generation, that he's trying this as well. Uh, I mean, I've got a great deal of respect and affection for the Terry Windling series, which obviously in- included such classics as the as Jane Yolen's Briar Rose. Oh, yeah. But uh, – but, pushed a particular or developed a particular kind of urban fantasy. So the fact that he's got a new book in a new way coming out is quite interesting. I well, thought. one of the things that's fascinating about that, that he, he labels this as urban fantasy, um, the Moonheart came out in 1985 and uh, in fact was not labeled an urban fantasy at the time. But the year after that, we got uh, the, the Wizard of the Pigeons. We got uh, the, the, Megan Lindholm's The Wizard of the Pigeons. We got Emma Bull's War with the Oaks, uh, the the Borderland Border Border Town series that Ellen Christian. In other words, all the stuff that came to define uh, the urban fantasy genre in the late '80s 
sort of followed up on Moonheart. In other words, you could make an argument that Moonheart was a pioneer, using this modern definition of urban fantasy, that Moonheart totally was a pioneering that- novel. It, it absolutely was one of the er texts, if you like, of modern urban fantasy, followed by that little cluster of books you're talking about exactly. Wizard of Pigeons, War for the Oaks, small handful of other titles that came out, uh, or mostly through Ace Books, mostly edited by Terry Windling. Yeah. I think Ellen Kushner was associated in some way with, with that as well at the time and was really exciting. In fact, speaking as one of those occasional old fart kind of guys sitting there, you've got your definitions wrong. I kept looking at all the women in tight leather pants with tramp stamps kind of urban fantasy going, that's not urban fantasy. This stuff is urban fantasy. Go find another title. Right, exactly. But that, that title has been, that, that, that argument's long since been lost. Yeah, and in, in fact, I'm pretty sure I misspoke because I think it was Terry Windling's Border Town series that followed that up uh, rather than Ellen yeah. Kushner. But, but nevertheless, yeah. Uh, urban fantasy. It's uh, there was an article that uh, a, a, a good a good Swedish scholar of fantasy, Stefan Ekman, had written about the actual definition of urban fantasy as it kind of came to be received in the publishing world in the eighties and nineties. Before, I mean, before that, there was urban fantasy, any fantasy set in a city. I mean, uh, so Charles Williams was writing urban fantasy set in London, and after that, urban fantasy was any kind of paranormal romance. I mean, I've seen. Uh, the the uh, Twilight series described as urban fantasy, even though it's not urban by any standards of anybody who ever actually lived in a city. Um, but that notion of uh, creating contemporary fantasy using some of the kind of mythopoeic energy of of, of, of high fantasy is, is something that is very identifiable and, and, and really that I think Delint was one of the pioneers of. Although possibly the classic text, in, in my mind, the classic text Defining that genre has always been Wizard of the Pigeon. Love that book. Still a great book. It's a great book. Not that I've read it in a long time. I, I mean, rereading is the thing. Who has time to do? That, I feel like that's, things that, that's something that other people do. I feel the same way, although I feel really guilty when I see people on Facebook talking about how they've reread uh, all of I, – I, I just reread of all of Robert E. Howard last week, and it holds up. I, I, no, I haven't. I reread things – that have nothing to do with science fiction or fantasy when I go back and reread things just for reasons that sometimes I get set off by something I'm reading. I enjoyed, for example, uh, enormously Lily Yu's um, novel on fragile waves, which is barely fantasy. It has a ghost in it, and the ghost functions in a way that has to be a ghost. But it also is a literary novel with some literary techniques in it that reminded me of James Joyce, and it sent me back to reading some of James Joyce's short stories. And and that's yeah. but, but but the idea of going back, I, I used to do this before I had deadlines for reviews. I used to go back and reread something three or four times. I may have read Lord of the Rings twice. I probably, when I was in high school, read T.H. White's The Once and Future King three or four times because I fell in love with that, and that was my archetypal view of um, of Arthurian legend. Um, yeah. And... When I looked at uh, when I look at things that are completely out to demolish that view, uh, like Lavi Tidar's By Force Alone, it doesn't affect it at all. I mean, Lavi's book is enormous fun, and it's 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 it makes you want to reread all kinds of things, not Arthurian legends only, but he you know you need to reread Lovecraft, you need to reread the Strugatsky brothers. I don't yep. I, I I don't feel the need to reread things just because I'm reminded of them by something I'm reading. I will say one of the books that I'm most looking forward to reading this year, if I can never get a hold of a copy, of a copy is 
Levite Har's The Hood. That sounds true. You were, it does sound great. Yes. Uh, but you were, I mean, you're talking about books that relate to other books that you were knocked out by. I mean, I've already read your review. It hasn't come out in the magazine yet. But um, the, your, my Vos book, The Chosen and the Beautiful, seems to have been a book that, that really resonated with you because of your other reading. It, 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 it's one of the things that really surprised me, and partly because it's very easy to get – I mean, Nevo, I'd, I'd read the, the Empress of Salt and Fortune, so I knew that she's a very skilled writer and a very skilled stylist and can write beautifully, which, first of all, ought to be one uh, – if you're going to write something based on Fitzgerald and something closely based on F. Scott Fitzgerald, you need to be able to write well. So I knew she could do that. What I was afraid of was that I was going to see something like Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Um, I was afraid I was going to see people just doing anything they wanted to do with the characters from The Great Gatsby, which I do think is great. Um, she she was not parodying things. She was she had closely read the novel. There are scenes in um, in, in her novel, in Niveau's novel, that are literally inserted within scenes of within the same scenes in, in, in Scott Fitzgerald's novel. She treats the novel with enormous amount of respect and I hope with an enormous amount of affection at the same time that she's opening it up, opening it up. I think I use the phrase augmenting it so that readers who may have felt excluded from a novel written published in 1925 uh, can feel included. She makes Jordan Baker, who's just a kind of flapper golfer, who's a fascinating character in the original, makes her into a Vietnamese orphan uh, adopted by a wealthy family in Louisville. And there's no reason not to do that, but what it does in terms of opening up the text is really interesting. So that's what I consider two books in dialogue with one another. One book is not simply piggybacking on the other's success, and it's not a parody, and it's not an attempt to demolish the earlier book. Yeah, and th- 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 so so in other words, that that kind of thing I enjoy. I enjoy that kind of back and forth, and it surprised me when I saw it. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it it's a book that I've I've been meaning to read. I mean, I've been reading obviously short fiction for and stuff mm. for short you know, fiction projects that I've got to finish and stuff. So finding any time to read novels is always a challenge. Though I'm hopeful I'll get to read more this year. And you know, there are so many sort of long and mid length pieces. I know that. Uh, there's Ken Lowe's next book is coming out later this year right. and it's enormous and I'm hoping to get time to read it um, and a f- there's a few other bits and pieces around but uh, there's enough anyway we've been talking for too long Gary we're over the hour we should probably wind up what has been a genuine ramble today uh, I think if people people who are getting concerned that we might have been gaining coherence can now rest reassured that we haven't <laughs> Yes, yes. And as, as the, the band song in the background gets louder and louder, it seems it's also a, a solid time to give everybody a little bit of relief. And we'll be talking to a couple of guests in upcoming weeks, and and we will be probably re- resurrecting some short discussions, probably with the same people we talked to a year ago. The more I think about this, the more I think about checking in a year later, are you still there? Have you gone outside yet? <laughs> Yeah, we could eh, we could possibly we do, do that. that. Another hundred episodes, Gary. Are you really up for another hundred episodes? It, it, well, the thing is, I don't understand how we did this, but once we got into the rhythm of it, it was kind of fun. Oh, no, it was a lot of fun. My only thing was, I would it, it kicked off at a time when I was working at home. Oh yeah, uh, and I'm back in the office full time, so it's kind of a bit harder to find the time to drop in because a ten minute episode doesn't take ten minutes. It takes organization plus half an hour or so, and every single day, but. You're right. You're exactly right. And also what happened, which wasn't visible to everybody else, because, of course, they weren't done live on the day. 
So it meant that when one of us was lagging behind, the other did like four of them and here's that. Right. And so it kind of balanced out with one another. So who knows? Maybe we can find a way to do it. We've certainly got a list of all those people we talked to and we could go back and we could bother them all again. We're coming for you, our friend. <laughs> hey, maybe we'll even finally get one of those one or two that we never got to, like like Peter Straub and people like that. Yeah, that's a, 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 Peter apparently has agreed to be on another podcast, and I need to speak to him about that. But we should. Anyway, in the meantime. In the meantime, until the next time with a guest, actually, this has been the Cood Street Podcast.